All right, we've been in the, the, the book of Acts together, like going kind of systematically through the book of Acts. The one thing I love about going through a book is that you're confronted with scripture that you don't necessarily like or wouldn't choose. And so uh, we're in Acts chapter 9 today, and we're going to be talking about this uh, Saul's conversion. His name is Saul of Tarsus, also known as Paul the Apostle. They're kind of synonymous names. Uh, Saul is his Hebrew name, and Paul is his Greek name, and so he's known as Saul kind of in the beginning of Acts and then is really called Paul throughout the rest of it. It kind of switches a couple times, but, um, but this is this man and where he was and how God saved him. So would you mind standing with me as we read Acts chapter 9? Let's honor the reading of God's word. Acts 9 verse 1 says this, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples, and he went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, Christians, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They they heard the sound, but they did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus, and for three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man named Saul of Tarsus, or Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this dude, about this man, and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. I mean, when God says go, you go. He says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. Lord, I I thank you for your word. I I pray that... um, even in this word today, that we would realize that there is really nobody outside of your reach. Nobody. God, I I pray that uh, you would bring hope and faith alive in us again today just by reading a story of a man who seemed so very far away from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Be seated. Thanks. All right. So, this is not the first time. So if you've never heard of Saul of Tarsus or Paul the Apostle and you're kind of new to this Christian thing, um, this is not the first time that Saul was mentioned. Uh, in fact, we, we see him in Acts chapter 7. 
We, we, we actually read through this, this whole portion. Saul was present at the execution of Stephen, who was the first Christian martyr who, who was stoned to death. He actually held on to people's coats for them because how many of you know if you're trying to stone somebody and throw a stone, you need to take off your coat so that you can, you can wind up and be able, to, be able to do that. And so he's like, I will hold. He held on to all of their coats so that people could stand up and actually throw better to kill Stephen. Not only that, um, Acts chapter 8 verse 1 begins with this statement that Saul approved of Stephen's killing. He approved of it. So he wasn't just a coat bearer. He wasn't just a, you know, I'll, I'll just stand back and I don't want to be a part of this. He was excited about the killing of Stephen. And I want you to just think about what kind of man this was. This is not a guy who, who is a lover of people, a lover of Christians or a believer in Jesus he was trying to eradicate it and was actually a part and a proponent of the death of Stephen. Acts chapter 9, verse 1, we just read it. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Even his very breath was murderous. I mean, everything about him. I mean, think about this guy. Uh, he, there's, there's nothing about him that was like, well, I just, you know, I just... I'm just a little misunderstood. He was on a rampage, um, and he was not wasting time. He was not waiting around. Uh, the Bible says in verse 1 that he went to the high priest, and uh, verse 2 says he asked him for the letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any who belonged to the way. Did you catch that? The way. It's mentioned about five times, especially early on in the book of Acts, and it's before they were known as Christians. They were called members or people who belonged to the way, not a way, but the way. That was what they were kind of known as early on. They were kind of this weird offshoot sect of Judaism who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. And they said, oh, these people who belong to the way. Those were the people that if he found any of them, whether men or women, he would take them as prisoners back to Jerusalem. So I want you to understand, he's in Jerusalem. He gets letters because he wants to go to Damascus to arrest some people belonging to the way. This is about 150 miles away. This is before you had cars and all kinds of way to get around. 150 miles is a very long distance. In other words, he is going out of his way to hunt Christians down. He doesn't have to do this. He actually goes and asks for letters to be able to go to seek out Christians and to bring them back and imprison them. He is going out of his way to hunt down, to find, shackle, arrest, and drag Christians back into prison. And he views Christianity much like a, a virus that needs to be eradicated. They're handling it in Jerusalem, and it's spreading out because people are leaving Jerusalem. And so he's trying to bring them back and make sure that they um, have justice. Not only that, but he thinks that he's doing God a favor by doing it. He isn't just kind of a, a crazed guy who hates all religious people. He's a very religious guy, loves Judaism, and he's trying to keep it pure by eradicating these Jesus followers of the way. So he's doing, he's doing God a favor by prosecuting and persecuting Christians. I want you to realize that as Saul is heading with kind of his entourage on this road to Damascus, he's not a seeker. He's not reconsidering um, what Jesus is, and maybe he could be the Messiah. He's not reading the case for Christ, okay? He is, uh, he is not even um, kind of, you know, maybe doubting his hatred for Christians. He is literally going to put Christians in prison, and he's stoked about it. He's ready for this thing. And what amazes me 
is that God doesn't seem to be phased by this at all. Because from all outward appearances, this guy is kind of a lost cause. He is obviously the villain of this story. The die has been cast. He has, he has been a part of murdering a Christian. And he's trying to imprison all Christians. He is not this close to Jesus. He's not leaning towards Jesus and kind of asking some questions. He's, he is dead set on what he believes. And it's, and it's not... Jesus Christ. So he's not going to become a member of the way, a Jesus freak, a, a, a Christian, whatever you want to call him. He's not even close to that anytime soon. But God does not seem to be too concerned that Saul does not even seem interested. That is the beauty of God. <laughs> while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. That while we say, oh, you know, I was not even, I didn't even care about you and I don't even want anything to do with you, he's been pursuing you. Because God always sees potential in us even when we see nothing at all. This is the beauty of this God that we serve. And so there's four things I want to kind of hit you with. And the first one is this, that um, what we learn from Saul's conversion is that God is pursuing you whether you perceive it or not. I just want you to understand that. I, I don't care if you kind of came in here and you're like begrudgingly here because, you know, your mom invited you and you're like, man, I, I don't even want this Christianity thing and I don't even know what I believe in here. I just want you to know God is pursuing you whether you perceive it or not. He's pursuing Saul who wants to kill Christians. And it says this, um, Essentially, verse 3 says, As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground. I don't mean to mess you up here, but it messed me up, so I'm going to mess you up a little bit. I don't know if it started with a, a painting by Caravaggio uh, or what, but I've always thought and learned that Paul fell off a horse. Did you, did you see that? Have you seen these, these paintings of like, him falling off the horse in midair and the bright light and the angel or something. I don't know. And he's like, oh, I've always thought that there was a horse involved in this story. So I start reading it. And I'm like Acts chapter 9. And then I look at the retelling of it from Paul telling Luke in Acts chapter 22 and Acts chapter 26, no horse. Not one mention of a horsey. Like not one. Uh, so I'm like, I do the pastor thing. I'm like, well, maybe the Greek word for like traveling meant traveling on a horse. No, it just means traveling. And then I was like, well, maybe when he fell, it means like to fall off a horse. Maybe there's a special Greek word for that. And it just means he fell. So he could have fallen. Here's the point. He could have fallen off a horse. He could have fallen off an emu. He could have fallen off of his own feet. We don't really know that. One thing we do know is Philippians 2.10, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Every knee will bow on the earth and under the earth. Which means that, that God will always humble you if you refuse to humble yourself. And let me tell you from experience, it's always better to walk in humility than to be humiliated. Isn't it? <laughs> it's like, it is always better to walk in humility than to be humiliated. And so we don't know what necessarily happened here, whether he fell off an emu, a horse, or just his own feet, but either way, he hits the ground. And verse 4 says, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, 
why do you persecute me? To which it's interesting to me that he says, why do you persecute me? Because Saul was not persecuting God. He was doing God a favor. He was persecuting Christians, the people that need to be eradicated, this, this sect of Judaism that was actually uh, affecting things. And so he's a little confused because he's like, uh, this sounds like uh, open vision and God's speaking to me, but I'm not persecuting him. And so he says, who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And he says, I am Jesus, who you're persecuting. It's interesting to me that Jesus makes no distinction between his church and himself. He makes no distinction between, um, well, like an attack on his church is an attack on Jesus himself, essentially. And this thing that's been rolling around in me all week is like, what would it look like if we truly viewed the body of Christ as seriously as Jesus views it? What would that look like to us? That attack on the body of Christ means an attack on Jesus himself. I think that we would probably begin viewing our brothers and sisters in Christ a little differently. Wouldn't we? I think we would probably um, view um, going to church not being an event that we attend, but a family that we belong to. Starts to shift how you view things. And then later on in Acts 26, Saul or Paul recounts this exact moment. He tells it again, Acts 26, 14. Uh, the moment that he hears the voice of God and it's a little bit different. He actually adds another part that he left out in Acts chapter 9. He says, we all fell to the ground, and I heard the voice say to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you per persecute me? And then it ends with this. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. To which all of you are wondering, what is a goad? And why is it hard to kick them? Right? I don't know about you. Like, those are, those are the questions that I ask. Like, oh, yeah, you're like, I know what a goat is. Sure, 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 sure. No, you don't. You have no idea what a goat is. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Now, let me give you kind of an explanation. A goat is a stick with a pointy end. It's very s simple. You could probably look it up Google Images, and there's some fancy ones. But, like, uh, for all intensive purposes, it is a short stick that has a pointy end, and it was used by farmers to prod their oxen to move when they didn't want to move or to move faster when they didn't want to move faster or to change direction when they didn't want to change direction. Essentially, it was used to kind of just prod or to goad beasts of burden to move in a direction that they were supposed to or just start moving when they were stubborn. And so an, an, an oxen would you know, you, you get prodded enough or you got just kind of a wing nut that just doesn't know what he's doing. He's just stabbing you in the rear end all the time. You get frustrated, right? So what do you do? You try to, an ox will try to kick against the goad. Now, what happens when you kick a pointy stick? It hurts more, right? You think like, ah, just cut it out. I'm, you know, and you end up hurting yourself even more. And, and you can read this and you're like, man, Jesus is kind of being a little insensitive because he's essentially talking about Saul of Tarsus as a, comparing him to a dumb ox that's kicking against a pointy stick. And that seems like it would be a bit demeaning. And I would agree with you. I think it is demeaning to all oxen everywhere. 
Why would I say that? Because never did an ox resist prodding and goading the way that we humans do. <laughs> Most oxen have enough intelligence when the pointy stick pushes you in the bum, you should probably start walking in the direction that it's pointing you, right? They get the point. No pun intended. Pun intended. They get the point, right? The problem with us as humans is that, um, well, we get goaded, we get prodded, we get pricked, and, and we kind of were like, you don't tell me what to do. God's like, I need you to go. Don't you do that to me again. I, I just need you to move. And then we try to kick him. We try to kick back at the goad. And we're like, ow, God, why do you hate me? Why? Why, God? He's like, I just need you to, would you cut it? Oh, God, you hurt me again, right? And we live our lives in this cycle. You ever find yourself in the cycle where it's like God's pricking you and prodding you and you're kicking it and hurting yourself even more and then blaming it on him? Ooh, that got quiet. Where all of a sudden we're like, it's kind of like in my life, I hate taking tests over. And so many times we'll come to this place in our life, and maybe you've been here before, like me, where you come to this test and you fail the test. And it's not so bad that you fail the test, but the reality is when you fail a test, you have to take it over again. And so maybe it's a week, a month, six months, a year later, you come up to that same test again. And God says, I'm actually just needing you to pass this test. And as he pricks you, and as he prods you, and as he goads you, we're like, God, I hate taking these tests. He's like, I know, but it's for your good. It's not because I have some sort of a malicious thing that I'm trying to come against you. I want you to pass the test. I want you to grow. I want you to become deeper. And he says, why are you kicking against the goads? You're only hurting yourself more. All right, enough about you. Let's talk about Saul. It got quiet. What were the goads that Saul was probably kicking against? I bet one of them was the death of Stephen. I, I bet one of them was the death of Stephen. He was there at the death of Stephen. He saw how Stephen died. He held the coats for the people that stoned him. He saw what the look on Stephen's face. Many believe that, that Paul actually pretty much gave most of the information to Luke as he was writing the book of Acts. Even though he wasn't mentioned in the first eight chapters, he was still around in those areas in that time. And so even when it says that, like it said that Stephen had the face of an angel, I bet it was from Paul, Saul, saying, you should have seen him. He had the face. It looked like he had the face of an angel. He was there when he died. He saw the look on his face. He even heard, and it probably still rang out in his ears, the forgiveness right before he died. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Let me just tell you, you don't walk away from stuff like that. It sticks to you. You can't get it off you. You can't experience something like that and just walk on and act like it never happened. It, it's going to continue to, to follow him everywhere he goes. And when God's pursuing you, we can either act in humility or rebellion, and he just chose rebellion, convincing himself that he was doing God a favor by doing this thing and by arresting Christians. C.S. Lewis, you may have heard of him. He, uh, he wrote a lot of books, but before he wrote all these Christian books that we love, he was an atheist literature professor in Oxford, and uh, he 
when he came to faith in Christ, he was writing um, a bunch of, one of the things that he wrote a lot about was how he could see God pursuing him all throughout his life. Even though he wasn't a Christian, even though he was a professed atheist and a professor, he writes this about himself, and I think it is so telling and true. He says, he called himself the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. And he goes on, drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape. (laughs) I love how honest he is. But the reality is, church, God is always pursuing you. We'd like to say that we're, I'm on a journey, I'm trying to find God. Most of the time, we're trying to find ourselves and evade God, if we're really honest. Our pursuing God is like a mouse pursuing a cat. We're not trying to actually find the cat. We're trying to evade the cat and stay as far away as we can from it because God is and always has been the one that has always been pursuing you. And our job is not necessarily to be the pursuer. Our job is to be humbled enough to allow him to catch us, to find us, and to just surrender ourselves to him. He is the pursuer. And maybe, maybe you're not a believer today. Maybe you're kind of in this place. I don't, I don't really know where I am with Jesus, and, 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 I, and, I, and I completely understand that. But maybe you've got like a friend or a grandparent or someone, a spouse that just keeps praying for you. And they won't shut up about Jesus. And you'd like to just dismiss them and kick against the goad. But there's just something you cannot shake. I wish I could just brush this thing aside and I just cannot evade it. He is always the one pursuing us. Always. Verse 7, it says, The men traveling with salts stood there speechless, and they heard the sound, but did not see anyone. I think it's interesting that Saul's companions saw a light, but they did not see the Lord. They heard a sound, but they did not hear the voice of God. Sometimes, sometimes Christian as, or seeker, wherever you're at in your relationship with Jesus, sometimes the people that are around us don't necessarily perceive what God is doing in you. As God is working and finding you and pursuing you, the people around you don't necessarily follow along or notice or the same things that you are. And he continues, this is what he did. He, he got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into, the, into Damascus. And for three days, he was blind and didn't eat, and didn't drink. He's, he's blinded and he proceeds to not eat or drink. He's essentially fasting. Why, is, why blindness and fasting? I don't know. But what I do know, if you're blind and fasting, you have a lot of time to think. <laughs> you got a lot of time to kind of process some of your past decisions, things that you were so passionate about. And for three days, he's blind. He can't see anything. All of the stuff that he used to be able to do, he can't do. He literally, the Bible says he has to be led by hand into Damascus. And so he is completely humbled or humiliated, however you want to look at it, to the place where he is just a lot of time to be quiet and amazed at the grace of God in his life. 
This is the same man who came into the kingdom of God, born as um, into the religion, born into the law, and he lived his life trying to be perfect, but he's born again into grace, into a, an encounter with the risen Jesus. And this is the one thing that as I read Paul's writings, as we look throughout the book of Acts, that he never got away from. He was never removed from the amazement at the grace of God in his life. He was always at this place of like, you can't even understand the grace of God. And if we're not careful, church, this is what I see happening to many of us in, in church is this. We get to the place where we think that spiritual growth means that we, we're in less of need of God's grace. Why? Well, I needed it when I was like a drug addict and a drunk. I mean, that's what <laughs> the grace of God came and saved me, but now I'm good. I go to church, and I have traded sins for others that are easier to hide. And I, now, I, now I give, and I serve, and I do all of these things. And the thing that I love about Paul, and the thing that I think is just being drawn out is this. Spiritual growth is not coming to the place where you need less of the grace of God. It is living in the constant amazement of the grace of God. I mean, this is literally how Paul lived his life up until his dying death. He was just, I, you can't even imagine the same God that saved me has kept me, and it is just as crazy how he saved me as how he continues to keep his hand on me. It is absolutely mind-blowing, the grace of God. In verse 10, he continues. It says, in Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. This is where it gets good. The Lord called him in a vision. He says, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. I want you to understand, this is what the Lord tells him to do. Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street. Okay. Ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. Wait, who? Saul of Tarsus, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. I want you, I want you to understand, this would be like Jesus coming to you, like, you know, years ago, where he's like, hey, I want you to go and pray for a man from Germany. His name is Adolf Hitler. I'm sorry, what? I need you to go pray for a guy. His name's Osama bin Laden. If you could just go lay hands on him and pray. And um, What? Excuse me? I, I, I want you to go and pray and, and heal and help the man who came to throw you in prison and would like to see you dead. Uh, <laughs> uh, no. What, what are, you, are you serious? But the second thing that we find here is that God is reminding us that absolutely no one is outside or beyond the reach of God. Absolutely no one. Because to Ananias, you're like, oh yeah, I want you to go pray for Saul of Tarsus. Saul is a horrible human. He is a horrible person. He was so evil that when Ananias is literally having an open vision, which maybe some of you have had, that's awesome. Most of you probably have never had this, where the audible voice of God is speaking to you and telling him what to do, his answer is, are you sure? God's like, Ananias, yes. I want you to go, um, what? It literally, watch what he responds with. He says, Lord, um, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm that he's done to all the holy people in Jerusalem, and he's come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name, meaning me. And it's so easy for us to look at people and to think, um, 
I don't think you know who you're talking about, God. Um, he is too far gone. His heart is way too hard. And maybe even in your own life, you've got people that maybe you've prayed for, loved ones, friends, family members that you're like, man, I, you don't understand. Like, God, they are so far gone. They're walking in the opposite direction of you. There is nothing, nothing on the radar that shows me that they're any closer to coming to you. I'm not talking about like they just need to get a book, The Case for Christ, to be able to read it. I'm telling you, they want nothing to do with you, Jesus, and nothing to do with your people. Their heart's too hard. Not really harder than Saul's? They're too far gone. I mean, more far gone than, than Saul of Tarsus. Further gone than him? Because here's the thing that if we deduce this all down, if this is true, then um, if God can reach the heart of Saul of Tarsus, then no one is beyond his reach. No one. And we know scriptures like, like Matthew 5, 44, where it says, Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And this... And that's fine in theory. But Jesus, audible voice is literally saying, I want you to go lay hands and to pray for your enemy. I'm okay with praying that my enemy would be smitten, smote, right? Whatever that word means, right? Like, I'm okay with you smite my enemies. I'll pray for my enemies that you would smite them, oh, mighty smiter. Like, but, but laying hands on them, praying for them, loving them, that's a whole other thing, and that is completely unnatural. But what if we believed that God could turn the hatred of our worst enemies into something that for, was for his glory? And I love, even in the questions, God literally says to him, but the Lord said to Ananias, one word, go. Yeah, but you don't, do you know, because Saul, are we talking about the same Saul? Because he's talking about, go. Yeah, but, but you don't understand, like, he's so far, Jesus, like, he's not even close Go. Yeah, but I left a track on the toilet and he didn't even pick it up. Go. What? Go. Let me just tell you, in my opinion, Ananias is the hero of this story. And it's the last time and the only time that he's mentioned. But I'm just telling you, this dude is awesome. Because, yeah, Saul of Tarsus, a.k.a. Paul the Apostle, wrote half the New Testament. He, you know, witnessed to, to thousands, planted churches all over the place, and has ministered to you and billions of Christians over the past couple thousand years. I mean, yes, okay, I, I, I get that, but it all hinged on one man, Ananias, a man who is never mentioned again with the humility to go, even though it made absolutely no sense. And the thing that's rolling around in me is this, like, what if the problem with the souls in our own community is not that God doesn't want to save them, but what if the problem with the souls in our community is that there are few people who would believe that he actually wants to and is able? God says to him, go. Then he says, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. The third thing I want you to realize is this. Your past sin does not disqualify you from your future calling. Your past sin does not disqualify you from your future calling. If anyone's past sin would disqualify them from future Christian leadership, it would be Saul of Tarsus. He was responsible and kind of leading the killing and arrest of many, many Christians. But isn't that like how our God is? He calls people who are completely unlikely like you and me. 
I think in the same way that we look at like Saul of Tarsus, are you kidding me? It'd be like looking at like Bruce from Biddeford? Are you kidding me? Like Dave from Saco? Uh, you have met Dave. You have no idea. That dude, he doesn't need, he uses Jesus Christ in swear words. That's about it. That's as close as he is to Jesus Christ. Like, are you kidding me? This guy is not any closer to Jesus than, than, than maybe Satan? I don't know. Bruce from Biddeford, you kid. I want you to think about this. Like, the, the church's greatest missionary was once the greatest enemy. Only Jesus Christ does that. It's preposterous. Won't you stand with me? <laughs> I want you to realize that Ananias was not a superhero, he was a kind of a guy just like you. An individual just like you and me. He is my hero because I can't even imagine the courage that I would have to drum up to ring the doorbell of Saul of Tarsus. I mean, think about that. Think about what that must have been looking like. Like, he's like, well, are you sure? And God says, go. I want you to go pray for him and lay hands on him that he would receive the Holy Spirit. Um, if, if you're me, I would be praying in tongues the entire time. I would be like, oh God, maybe he won't be home. Maybe I'll ring the doorbell and run, and nobody will answer. This will be great. Okay, Jesus, make sure no one's home. I would literally think about the, the, the strength and the courage to ding-dong, like the longest ding-dong in, like, I mean, I know they didn't have doorbells, but, like, you got to imagine, clank, 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 the first time he knocks on this guy's door, the courage that it took to just ring that doorbell. It says, Ananias went to the house and entered it and placing his hands on Saul. Look at the words that he, he says to Saul. He says, brother Saul. What did he call him? Brother? Like how in the world is this guy his brother? How could a man who, who literally they were the bitterest of enemies come to the place of calling each other brothers. And it's this reality that when you are born again, you are not born again an orphan. You are born again into the family of God, which means uh, we need each other. I need you. You need me. We need brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, spiritual moms and dads to come alongside us. Saul needed it. Ananias, I'm sure, had a whole prayer team praying for him as he went. Intercessors. I want to call up um, Mike Butler. Can I borrow that again? Thanks, buddy. I will. I'll give it back this time. Come on up, Mike. I want to just share this testimony. I heard it at 530 this morning. And uh, let me just tell you, this is like a modern-day Saul of Tarsus um, conversion story. So go ahead and tell him. Amen. Um, well, probably about uh, a month ago or six weeks ago, my... Um, my mom called me and said, um, Michael, you know, one of your relatives is sick and has cancer, and um, could you pray for him? You know, because she knows that we have a lot of friends who pray and can come to the church and pray. And so I, so I said, yeah. I said, well, we'll pray. We'll pray for him, you know. So, uh, so <clears throat> I brought it to the to morning prayer and a few other places and said, hey, we need to pray for him. And so we started praying, and, um, and then... I was going to go over and see him because I just felt like I needed to go over and just lay hands on him and pray over him. You know what I mean? And, and, but anyways, he, he, had a, he wound up having a stroke, 
okay? And I wasn't able to, to do that because my family and I were gonna go on vacation. So we were leaving to go, to go off and go on vacation. And I was like, oh, I'm like, Lord, Lord, he needs to be healed. You know what I mean? He's, he's, he's like one of the last ones in my family to get saved. And I, I'm just praying and praying and praying, you know, and I was just really bummed out. So I get out there and I'm out on vacation and all of a sudden I get this text from my mom. And my mom says, Mike, you need to call me. She said, you know, your relative has had an encounter with Jesus. And I'm like, I'm thinking, okay, like what, what are you talking about? You know, so of course I, out there where we were, there was no, there's no, um, you know, signal so you can, so I had to go to this special place to get signal on my phone so I could call my mom. So I'm talking to her and she said, um, she said, Michael, she said, um, your uncle has um, had an encounter with Jesus. And I'm like, well, what? happened mom well she he met him I'm like what do you mean he met him she's like he met him face to face I'm like really I'm like come on mom are you serious you know I mean I'm being honest I, I I've been repenting for my unbelief like repenting daily for my unbelief because I'm like I'm thinking okay okay you know so so my mom hangs up and I'm and I'm just processing this while we're on vacation and then so when I got back I'm like I gotta go see him, right? So anyway, so Friday, I got in my car and I drove Friday afternoon. I drove over to his to their house, to my relative's house, and um, and I walked in and I'm like, "Hey, how you doing?" You know, and so anyway, so he 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 was explaining to me what happened, and he said he was sitting in his chair, and he said that he felt a um he felt a wind blow on his on his side, and he says, and I just kind of picked my head up and I looked. And he says, and Jesus just walked by me. And, and, and something brushed against him. And he said, it came around, and he told him who he was. And then he turned, and he walked through the wall. And he said, Michael, it wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a vision. He was in bodily form, just like you're standing in front of me. And I'm going, whoa, right? And he said, and he said, and I had cancer on my ear, on my ear. It was bump, I had these big bumps on my ear. And he said to me, he said, um, I walked in the bathroom and they're gone, completely gone. And I looked at him and I said, so, so, so I'm like, I'm like, have you received Jesus? And he looked at me right in the face. He said, Jesus Christ is my Lord and he lives in my heart. And I'm standing there. I mean, I'm talking like I'm standing there. I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm, I'm in awe. Right. And then, um, I'm just going to say it. My aunt, she looks at me and she said, Ever since this happened, Michael, we've been getting up every morning and we sit at that table every morning and we pray together as a husband and wife and we read the word of God together every single day since this happened. Amen? Amen? So I just want you to know, I, I had, I, you need to hear me. I drove home in tears, man, just repenting for my unbelief. I said, Lord, forgive me. You can do anything you want to, any way you want to do it. And I want all of you to hear this from me. I mean, he is Lord. Amen. He can save. He can heal. He can do it any way he wants to do it. Amen. And that means that's, and, and, and it's not just for me. It's for everybody in here. He can do it any way he wants to do it. And I want you to remember that. Amen. I mean, this man, I'm telling you, it, it, it was a miracle. And I had to go see it. And I had to, I had to see it with my eyes to, to believe it. And I'm telling you, it was real. This man met Jesus in bodily form. I mean, it's like, and Jesus healed him right there. 
Praise God. Amen. 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 Thanks, buddy. We're going to end with a song here, and this is what I, this is what I'd love to do. I think it's important that we that we respond to what it is that God's doing, and uh, for maybe for some of you, you're kind of in this place where, like, you know what? There's some family members, some friends, a spouse, my kids that have walked away from the Lord or wherever they're at, and you've been praying for them, but but, but maybe it's just kind of gone away. Like you just, you know, at one time it was a fervent thing, but it's been years, it's been months, it's been a decade, and you've given up because it's like, man, they're, they're, they're going in the opposite direction. I mean, you talk about Saul of Tarsus, you're like, they're walking that, that way. You're talking about this family member. It's like, he's nowhere closer to receiving Jesus than he was 10 years ago. And how many of you know that God can just show up in their bedroom and just say, hi, I'm Jesus Christ, and tell you what, change their life completely. You don't have to go and, well, let me, let me just win you over to Jesus and let me have you pray a prayer. I mean, cut you off and says, no, you, you don't understand. I met Jesus Christ. He lives in me. <laughs> so what I want to do is as we sing today, maybe for some of you, you just want to like come to this place hearing these testimonies of Saul and hearing the testimony of, that Mike just told of, just renewing this commitment, this fervor to be praying for your loved ones, to be praying for people that, that, are, that you think, man, they are so far gone. They're, 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 their hearts are so hardened. You don't understand where they've been or where they're at. I just want you to know in an instant, God can move. So as we sing, maybe even right now, you just start coming right up here, right along up, up here in the front, and maybe you just come to the place. Maybe husband and wife, you guys come together, and you're just going to join together in faith and be praying for that person, that loved one, uh, wh- whoever that is in your life. I want you to just say, you know, we're going to commit today to believe God for greater things than what I'm seeing with my naked eyes. Because in my naked eyes, all I'm seeing is maybe some light and I'm hearing a noise, but I'm not seeing the Lord and I'm not seeing him moving. But God, I need to desperately see you move in the life of my loved one. And maybe for some of you today, you're kind of in here and you're like, no, I am Saul. I've been running away. I've been walking in this direction. And maybe today is the day where you're just like, you know what? I'm done running. I'm done running. I've been saying I'm seeking, but I'm just trying to evade him. And I'm ready for him to just catch me because I don't need to be afraid of it. And if that's where you're at right now, I just want you to pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I surrender to you today. And I'm not running anymore. I believe that you are the Son of God, that you came, died, and rose again for my sin. And rather than kicking against the goads, I receive you as my Lord and Savior today. Have your way in my life. I receive you, Jesus. As we sing this today, I just want to encourage you. Come to this place of just maybe you, I'm going to come around and and pray for you and, and just join your faith for those loved ones, those people that kind of you've just allowed to just kind of get put on the back burner. God, I pray that you would rise again, rise up in the hearts. Because if you can do it for Saul of Tarsus, if you can do it for this family member of Mike's Lord, I know you can do it. And so Jesus, we take off the blinders. We take off all the things, the hindrances of our own faith, and we believe you for greater things than we see. Even when we don't see you moving, we don't perceive it, we know you are. And so Jesus, have your way. Have your way in this place. Let's lift him up, church.